Well, it was observed to me that I am not Levi. So now I've got that existential crisis fixed for me. I'm not Levi. Uh, my name is Aaron Rains. Um, I have been with you before, but it's been a while, and there are lots of new faces. Um, so I'm glad to be back. Last time I was here, I was actually here uh, for Levi's installation service. And since that time, I've actually become the associate pastor at my church in Bentonville, Christ Church, Bentonville. Um, and I think you guys have been praying for me uh, when I came and filled in and preached for you. So uh, we are so grateful at Christchurch Bentonville for your presence here in Joplin and your ministry here. Uh, we loved your first pastor, your planting pastor, Reed, and we love Levi. We've loved getting to know him. He's a blessing to our church. We spent some time with him uh, at General Assembly, and so uh, we love having him here. Also very appreciative of Cody. I kind of went through what Cody is going through now at my church. So I was an assistant I was um, going through school. I uh, just graduated last, uh, last winter and then finished ordination. And during that process, I was a ruling elder. And now, now Cody is that for you. So, Cody, I feel the pain, brother. It does get better. But it is a joy to serve God's church. Thank you for letting me come. I wish it was under different circumstances. Um, but continue praying for Levi, and I'm glad to have any opportunity to come and to preach God's word to God's people, but especially to you guys. I did not know you had been reading through portions of Genesis as you're covering redemptive history. That's great, because you will be a little more prepared for what I'm going to do today. At Christ Church Bentonville, in, um, at the very beginning of the year, actually, in January, we started preaching a series through Genesis. And so today... I'm going to preach Genesis 5. That's right. We're going to look at a genealogy. That seems like probably a bad idea for a guest preacher, but if nothing else, you'll be riveted by going, how is he going to try to pull this off? And if I fail, it'll be something that gets your attention. But before we get to Genesis 5, we need the context of how we get there, which thankfully you kind of have. But obviously, Genesis 1 through 4 comes before Genesis 5. And what happens in those opening chapters of Genesis? Well, Genesis 1 is the creation of the cosmos, all things. And it starts out from the big, wide-angle lens of everything that has been created, God created. He created it all in six days by the word of his power and all very good. And in Genesis 1, the, the uh, focus narrows by each day until on the sixth day, finally it comes to the pinnacle of God's creation, his image bearers, man. Mankind made, male and female, in God's image, made to commune with him. And then at the end of chapter 1, beginning of chapter 2, God blesses the seventh day and sets it aside as a special day for him to commune with his image bearers. Chapter 2 zooms in even more and tells us even more detail of that creation of mankind. When God created man and there was no partner for him, so he created woman as the perfect partner. So that together, man and woman image God on the earth. We see the beauty of marriage that comes out of this, but we also see the command that God gives. At the end of chapter 1, he gives a command in the form of a blessing, be fruitful and multiply and have dominion. And then in chapter 2, he gives a prohibition command. He says, don't eat of the fruit of one tree. Genesis chapter 3, no sooner does God give the command, but the tempter comes and they fail. They eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so the curse comes upon the earth. The first man and woman are removed from the garden. But in the midst of that, God's first word after sin 
is grace. Genesis 3.15, probably the pivotal and, and maybe even the most important verse in the Bible because the entirety of the rest of Scripture is an unfolding of what God says there, where he gives the promise that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the seed of the serpent, and that's how God would reclaim his people and bring them back into communion with him. And then chapter 4 tells us of the first children and the first murder, where the older son of the first man and woman killed the younger son out of jealousy. And then that's followed with a list of Cain's descendants. There's a genealogy of Cain's descendants. And the, the main point to take away from that is as you work through it, it almost seems like their goal, once you get to the end of it, is to one-up everybody ahead of them in sin. They want to be as bad and evil as possible. Okay, so that brings us to chapter 5. Now, why are we going to look at a genealogy? Well, because all Scripture is God-breathed, and it is profitable for us to teach us about our Lord Jesus Christ and what He would have us to believe and to do. So let me read for us Genesis chapter 5. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God, male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Mahalalel were for 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God. And he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work, and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. 
After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. This is God's word to us. May he bless its reading and its preaching. Let's pray before we go any further. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. So one year when I was maybe seven or eight years old, I got the dreaded thing for every homeschool child. My dad gave me a school project over Thanksgiving break. He had me interview my great-grandmother Rains. We would gather at her farm outside of Warren, Arkansas. You've never been there. You've never heard of it. My, my task was to get a piece of our family history, her story of her life. And even though I was young at the time, what, what stuck out, with me, out to me and stuck with me to this day is the things that she said were the very same things that my grandfather and my father always talked to me about, all the things they were sure to teach me. What I didn't realize then was that I was being handed the, the testimony of a covenant-keeping God who showed himself faithful to a family who then in turn passed down the faith from generation to generation. Everything about who I am, for better and for worse, has been shaped by those who have gone before me. There's a family resemblance that goes beyond just large triangular noses and receding hairlines, which does run in the family. But my father made it a point to instill in me what it means to be a reigns, to carry our heritage forward from those who had gone before. Now, why do I say all of that? Well, because our passage that I just read is the family history of Adam. It begins, this is the book of the generations of Adam. And it traces the, the lineage from Adam to Noah, two vital, important characters in that redemptive history you're working through. This sweeping overview of these just 32 verses, this actually covers the longest period of history of any section of Genesis. And it's really sparse on details. It really only highlights a couple of individuals in these first 10 generations of mankind. But when we look close, what we do see here is a family that hands down the faith from generation to generation. True, by the time we hit the very next chapter, which those events I'm, I'm sure most of you are familiar with, by that point, dar the darkness of sin had covered the face of the earth as pervasively as darkness had covered the face of the newly created earth back in Genesis 1. And the Lord's solution to that was to use the flood to wipe the world clean. Yes, the darkness had, had covered that far. But through it all, there's a glimmer of hope shining in the middle of that darkness. Because as John Calvin wrote on this passage, there was always a number, though small, who worshipped God, and this number was wonderfully preserved by celestial guardianship, lest the name of God should be entirely obliterated and the seed of the church should fail. God would keep his promise to Adam and Eve. 
to preserve a faithful remnant until that seed of the woman would come and ultimately bring defeat of the seed of the serpent and freedom from sin and death. And my ultimate task today is not merely to tell you about this list of ancestors, but to point you to that seed, to Jesus. So the outline that we have has three points, family resemblance, friend of God, and a father's hope. So let's begin with family resemblances. In those first 20 verses that I read, Genesis 5, 1 through 20, you'll notice that there's a family resemblance. Moses, who wrote Genesis, he repeats what he had said back in the first two chapters of Genesis. He says that God had made man in his own image. This means, in the words of my senior pastor, that human beings were created as rational, reflective, relational, and responsible creatures. And then Moses also repeats here that mankind was blessed by God. He made mankind, male and female, and he gave them this blessing command to be fruitful and multiply. But there's one addition here in the first couple of verses of chapter 5 that was not mentioned in the earlier narrative. Moses says that God named his image-bearing creation. He named us man. So the description we have here of God is meant to show us that God was Adam's father. Adam was made with that family resemblance, that image. And even though he had sinned, that image was not completely eradicated. Mankind were still male and female. They were still able to procreate. And they still had the possibility of fellowship with the God who created them for that purpose. However, something had changed through Adam's sin. Notice that the text says in verse 3 that Adam fathered a son in his own likeness. This is the first thing that we see Adam passing down. Not the upright nature that he had received at creation, but a corrupted nature due to his own sin. Our confession, the Westminster Confession, puts it this way in chapter 6. The guilt of Adam's sin was imputed and the same death in sin and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity, descending from them by original generation. Matthew Henry explains it this way. He says, Adam was made in the image of God, but when fallen, he fathered a son in his own image, sinful and defiled, frail, Wretched and mortal like himself, not only a man like himself, consisting of body and soul, but a sinner like himself. And that's the same image that you and I have, a true image of God, but one that is marred by sin. We inherit a corrupted nature because we are all descendants of Adam and Eve, the first sinners. And the evidence of that likeness of Adam is scattered through the description in those first 20 verses. Kids, I'm going to give you permission to talk in church for a second, okay? You are allowed to to talk back to me. When I read through that passage, what's the one phrase you heard over and over again? And he died. That's right. Moses repeats it for every single one of those men. Why? Because he wants us to feel those repeated blows over and over again. So and so lived, he had kids. And he died. As long as these lives may have been, and they appear to be very long, 
they all came to an end. Death was still the inevitable enemy awaiting all of Adam's sons because they had the family resemblance of a corrupted human nature. So Adam passed along a corrupted nature, but he also passed along to his son a name. Like the creator who named him, here Adam names his son. He's demonstrating that in some ways he's, he's still like the God in whose image he was made. At the end of chapter 4, Seth's birth is recorded the first time, and, and there Moses wrote that Eve named Seth. But here he has Adam naming the boy. So at least on this one, they, they were agreed, I, I guess. But this is the first time that Scripture records Adam naming something or someone since he named Eve his wife in response to the promise that she would be the mother of the seed who would crush the head of the serpent. So what we see here in Adam naming his son, we should see it as an act of faith. He's confirming, Adam is confirming his confidence in God's promise. And he's looking for its fulfillment through the appointed son, the son Seth, that takes the place of his murdered son, Abel. And it's this genealogy, this is the one through Seth that carries that promise forward. Not Cain's line that was recorded one chapter prior. So, so Adam passes along a corrupted likeness, a name, but he also hands down to his descendants a knowledge of God. Again, in, in chapter 4, Genesis 4 tells us that Seth's time, in, in Seth's time, people began calling upon the name of the Lord. They began gathering together for corporate worship, doing what we're doing today. Probably looked significantly different, but that's what they were doing. And as we read about Seth's descendants here in this line, we see that they knew the Lord. And they were familiar with both the curse and the promise given to Adam. At least through this line, from Adam to Noah, the knowledge of God was handed down generation to generation. And you have to wonder, you don't have to, I do, uh, if you're curious, how many of these guys heard directly from Adam himself? Because if you line up the ages of these men, Adam would have been around to see all of them, all the way down to Lamech, Noah's father. As the patriarch of the family, each of these descendants would have been able to go to him and hear directly from him about the garden, hear about the serpent, and hear about the judgment and the promise of God. Which brings us to a difficulty, I'll admit it. What are we supposed to do with these extremely long ages? And I'm not going to be able to resolve that completely for you this morning. But there are a couple of things that we can see here that are clear and important. So first, this is not mythological language. These are real, historical people. And these ages, as long as they are, are meant to be taken seriously. As strange as they may sound because of our personal experience, people don't live to 900 God's word seems to clearly tell us that these men that lived before the flood lived for multiple centuries. And if God says it, we ought to believe it. It isn't clear whether these ages are meant to be taken as normal for everybody at that time, 
Or if, you know, some commentators believe this is a special blessing on this line. These were, this was the godly line, and so they were out of the ordinary. Have your own opinion on that. Scripture doesn't tell us one way or the other. But there is a theological reason, I think, that these ages are included. And you see it when you compare it to the list of generations of Cain in chapter 4. If you look, it's probably on the same page in your Bible, that chapter. If you look just a few verses up at that list, you notice that in Cain's line, there are no ages listed. It's only in Seth's line that these ages are listed. And I think that the ages of each man are, are missing from Cain's line. To make the theological point that life apart from the Lord is not life at all. It's almost as if Moses is showing us, it doesn't matter how long those descendants of Cain might have been breathing on the face of this earth, they never lived a single day. Because they rejected the Lord to pursue their own sin. They lived a living death their entire lives, however long they may have been. So when we read of Seth's line, we have these long lives, and, and our attention should be drawn to the blessing, the blessing of long life granted to the generations that trusted the Lord, that, that faithfully continued the line of godly offspring. Whether or not lives this long were out of ordinary before the flood, these men are a shining example of Proverbs 3, 1 and 2. These sons did not forget their father's teaching. Their hearts kept their father's commandments, and so length of days and years of life and peace were added to them. And yet, as good and full and long as each of these lives were, every single one came to an end. Sin's effects are real. They've been passed along to Adam's race, even through the good line. In the words of Matthew Henry again, man's life is but dying by degrees. But as we read through that list, just as that repetition of lived, father, died, lived, father, died, starts to lull us to sleep, we should be jarred awake by what we read about a friend of God in the next verses. That's our next point. Verse 21, when Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Here in Enoch, we see echoes of the Garden of Eden. First, the obvious one, right? The text doesn't follow the pattern that we had before by ending with Enoch lived. What does it say in verse 22? He walked with God. This is the first time in Genesis that Moses describes anyone as walking. This is back in chapter 3 where the Lord God walked in the garden in the cool of the day. Enoch had a relationship with God that was the closest thing possible outside the Garden of Eden. I love how the, the Net Bible, the New English Translation Bible notes, it puts it this way. The phrase suggests that Enoch and God got along. Enoch lived in close fellowship with God, leading a life of devotion and piety. That's true life. True life to walk with God. And Enoch here, he's foreshadowing Noah, the only other person in the Old Testament described as walking with God. 
But that's not just the goal for a couple of super spiritual men from a long, long time ago. Do you remember what the prophet Micah says God requires of man? What does he require of you, O man, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? This is the call for all of us as God's image bearers, is what we were made for, is that fellowship with God to walk with him. And what a contrast we have here from Cain's descendants. Among Cain's descendants, he had a great-great-grandson named Lamech. He was the seventh generation. And he boasted of taking the wickedness of his forebears and increasing it exponentially. That was his boast. But in contrast, Enoch is the seventh generation. Seven being the number of completion and perfection. And he's set forth, he's singled out in this list as a wonderful example of a righteous life. So when you set these two genealogies side by side, we're meant to see that this is the continuation of what was prophesied and promised in Genesis 3. The, through the Cain's line, the continuation of the seed of the serpent. And through Seth's line, the continuation of the seed of the woman. There's another hugely significant change in the description of Enoch. We get to that point where we would expect to read, and he died. But instead we find, and he was not, for God took him. It's so interesting. The language here parallels what God did with Adam in Genesis 2. Genesis 2.15 says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So while the Lord took the first man to place him in paradise on earth, here after the fall, God takes the son of Adam from fallen sinful earth into the heavenly paradise. My dad related a wonderful way he heard a preacher explain this. He said it's like Enoch was out with God on their daily walk, and when evening came, God said, Enoch, we're closer to my house than yours. Why don't you just come home with me? And we see here in Enoch that while wonderful blessing is found in living a long life, there's an even greater blessing, living face to face with God, and eternally so in his heavenly temple. Enoch's years on earth were less than half of most of the other guys in this list, but he received a greater blessing than they did in never experiencing death. As one commentator said, perhaps long life is not the greatest blessing one can experience. To be elevated into God's presence is better. And as, as an aside, this isn't even in my notes, so this is for free. That's what you and I get every Sunday morning. You realize that? We are elevated into God's presence, into the heavenlies when we're gathered in worship. It's a foretaste of what we'll have forever, but we get that same blessing when we're gathered together as God's covenant people. Enoch and Elijah, they're the only two men in history that have their time on earth in this way. So don't expect that you won't die. That's not what I'm telling you. We have two people recorded. But we can look to Enoch as an example and as an encouragement to live holy lives before the face of God in hope of everlasting life with him. We have the same eternal destiny as even Holy Enoch. 
So this chapter of fathers and sons, there's a family resemblance, there's a friend of God, and then here in these last two generations, we see a father's hope. Just as the evil Lamech was the only one in Cain's line in chapter 4 who spoke, here in Seth's line, he has a descendant named Lamech, and he's the only one who speaks. Verses 28 through 32 say this, when Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief or comfort from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Lamech's words here show us a couple of things. First, shows us what Lamech knew. I hope something in what he said sounded familiar to you. Because in the, in the Hebrew text, he speaks in order of pain, the ground, and the curse. It is the exact reverse order of the curse that the Lord gave in response to the first sin. Found in Genesis 3.17, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Lamech knew this curse, and his hope is that it would be reversed, completely overturned. But he not only knew the message of the curse, if you, if you add up all the years in this genealogy, at the time that these words were spoken, he would have seen Adam and Seth and Enosh die. He would have seen his grandfather Enoch taken away. So Lamech not only knew the words of the curse, but he knew it by experience. He watched his forefathers return to the dust. He knew what you and I know, that this world is not as it should be, that it is broken, that death is an enemy. And he knew it firsthand as he watched it. But he also must have known the promise. Because he named his son in hope. Almost as if he was saying, I know the promise that there's one coming to deliver us. Maybe this is the one. Lamech hoped for deliverance. And he spoke prophetically of what he hoped his son would do. He named him Noah, which sounds like Neham. It's the Hebrew word that means comfort or relief. Lamech's hope was that Noah would bring relief in the midst of work and painful toil. His hope was in something that would happen. His, his hope of relief was not in escapism through alcohol or through drugs. His hope wasn't that he and his family could put the world back to rights. His hope that was in the word of God, a promised son that would do something that Lamech didn't even understand would happen. But he believed it. So we close this list of fathers and sons in hope. So as we wrap up, let's look at a couple of applications for us. The first one. We need, especially in our day, to take seriously the command to be fruitful and multiply. If you pay attention, you'll see that the world around us often portrays children as a burden stresses how difficult it is to raise them, 
how much energy it takes, how tiring it is, how frustrating it can be. I mean, look no further than those videos that pop up on your Facebook feed about how mommy needs wine, right? And sometimes, I'm a dad, all of that is true. But kids, look up, look up here at me, kids, because I want you to hear this. You are a blessing. You are not a burden. You're a blessing to your parents. You're a blessing to your church. And you're a blessing to this world. God loves you. And he wants more of you. And you you teenagers and young adults... Don't buy into the lies that the world will tell you. That it's better to have your freedom, to have your money, to have your fun. That kids will weigh you down and and take that away from you. Don't believe it. Getting married and having children is difficult and it is hard and it's exhausting work. But it's some of the most fulfilling and rewarding things you will ever do on the face of this planet. It's good if you desire to get married and have kids, it's good if you make that a priority because that's what we were designed to do. And what a joy it is to be in families and in a church filled with covenant children. But even more than just bringing them into existence, parents, especially fathers, are you passing down the teaching from one generation to the next. Step one is there must be a generation to give it to. But step two is actually giving them that heritage. Are your children hearing the faithful word of God? Are you calling them to take hold of the promises he gives them? and To take him as their God, which he promises to be. Even if you don't have a faithful Christian heritage... You have been adopted into God's family and you can be the beginning of a heritage of faith for those who carry your last name. Kids, are you listening to your parents' instruction? Are you taking it to heart? Learn from the examples in this list that the greatest blessing you can have will be found in listening to God's word, believing it and obeying it. And even if you don't have children, you have a part to play. Every time a covenant child is baptized, and I made sure, I talked with Cody to make sure you've done one recently enough, you should remember it. Every time a covenant child is baptized, you as members of this church take a vow. You promise to support that family in raising that children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. You promise to God that you will pray for these children, that you'll assist their parents in teaching them, and that you will live as examples of godliness and repentance before them. All of us in God's church play a part in passing the faith from one generation to the next. Second application, again in the form of a question. Are you seeking to walk with the Lord? Do you believe that true life is found in fellowship and communion with him? And so do you speak to him in prayer 
Do you listen to him in his word? Do you participate with him in the sacraments? Don't settle for an easy or a comfortable earthly life that's devoid of true blessing. True blessing is found in being a friend of God and ultimately in living eternally with him. But more important than what you and I should do, I told you in the introduction, my task, more than anything else, is to help you see Christ. We, the sons and the daughters who carry Adam's fallen likeness, we deserve death and judgment for our sins. It's only through Christ that we receive the blessing of salvation through grace. But all through this book of the generations of Adam, the Lord Jesus has been there. Did you see him? Let me point him out to you. Jesus is the true and better Adam. He is our mediator of the covenant of grace. He obeyed where Adam sinned. He succeeded where Adam failed. While the first Adam disobeyed and he brought death to the entire earth, the second Adam, the Lord Jesus, through his one act of righteousness, has brought justification and eternal life to all who will believe in him. Adam was made in God's image, but Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, who remakes us into his image by the work of his spirit. Jesus is the true and the better Seth. Cain was wicked, Abel died, and so God appointed Seth as a replacement in the family, a substitute to carry forward the promise. And when we were wicked and dead in our sin, God appointed Jesus Christ as our substitute to die in our place. Seth had sons and daughters, and then he died, and his story ended. But after the Lord Jesus died, he rose on the third day for our salvation so that by believing in him, we become sons and daughters of the living God. Jesus is the true and the better Enoch. He perfectly walked with God all of his days. And after completing work on his behalf, he was taken into heaven, not merely as the friend of God, but as our risen and ascended king reigning at his Father's right hand, and even now continuing to intercede for us. And it's Jesus, not Noah. That's the true fulfillment of Lamech's prophecy. Noah received God's favor by grace. Noah was delivered through judgment, but he brought sin with him into the ark. And so he was ultimately unable to fulfill what his father had hoped for him. But Jesus is the seed of the woman who by his perfect life and sacrificial death has brought us true relief from the curse of sin and the curse of the law so that our hope and our home is a heavenly Jerusalem where he himself, Jesus, promises to wipe the tears out of our eyes forever. True comfort only comes through him. So if you don't belong to him, I urge you, believe in him. Abandon whatever worldly hope for salvation and comfort that you have. 
give up whatever it is that you use to escape the pain of this world and rest completely on his perfect life, his substitutionary death, and his bodily resurrection as your only hope of eternal life and comfort. Christ the King, we belong in this family tree only because we're united to Jesus by faith. So may your hope and your joy be ever in him, and may you find comfort in him. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, let's pray together.